This episode of We the People is brought to you by CVS Health, where health is everything. Health, it's a team sport. CVS Health doesn't just fill prescriptions. They partner with doctors, hospitals, and employers to help patients manage their conditions for better outcomes at lower costs. Visit cvshealth.com to learn more. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, And welcome to the latest of our We the People constitutional podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this is a special podcast for two reasons. First of all, we're starting the first of a series of podcasts throughout the month of June that will review the week's big decisions before the Supreme Court, as well as the cases that are on the horizon, and we'll create a constitutional drumbeat that will culminate at the end of June in our discussion of landmark decisions involving marriage equality and the Affordable Care Act. It's also a special podcast because this is the first to be distributed by our friends at the Slate Panoply Network. We're thrilled to have joined the Panoply Network along with top performing public affairs podcasts in the country, including those run by the New York Times and the Huffington Post. Now let me introduce our podcast today. On Monday, June 1st, the Supreme Court handed down two major cases about free speech on Facebook and religious rights involving corporate dress codes. There are also important cases on the horizon that we'll discuss involving the privacy of hotel guest lists and election redistricting in Arizona. And joining us to analyze these decisions and the constitutional issues they raise are two of the leading scholars in America and even more excitingly, the two scholarly co-chairs of the National Constitution Center's Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board. This is an advisory board that's brought together the best liberal and conservative scholars in America to oversee these podcasts, as well as creating the best interactive constitution on the web, where the top scholars will write about every clause of the Constitution, including both what they agree about and what they disagree about. Richard Pildes is the Sudler Family Professor of Constitutional Law at the New York University School of Law, and Nicholas Quinn Rosencrantz is Professor of Law at the Georgetown University Law Center. All right, gentlemen, let's jump right into it, and let's start with the first important decision that the Supreme Court announced on Monday, the Abercrombie and Fitch decision. Uh, This involved Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which forbids an employer from taking an adverse employment action against any individual because of an individual's religion. Uh, The question here was whether an employee who wore a headscarf had to be accommodated or whether refusal to accommodate would be a a, a Title VII violation. And the question was how the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in federal court should interpret the Civil Rights Act. Uh, For a long time, the standard had been that employers have to provide religious accommodations Uh, In other words, they can't refuse to hire an applicant um, if they can accommodate a religious practice without an undue hardship. And in this case, Abercrombie and Fitch refused to hire a woman who wore a headscarf to her job interview. Uh, This violated the employee's dress code. And uh, Richard, uh, can you outline the basic questions in front of the justices? I'm happy to do that, Jeff. And it's fascinating that the cases this week from the court both are basically about what sorts of states of mind actors have to have before they violate federal law. So in this case, the question is, what did Abercrombie and Fitch have to know or have to suspect uh, before they were potentially liable 
for not respecting the religious rights of the uh, the plaintiff, the woman here in question. Uh, in the lower courts, uh, the Tenth Circuit had said that the prospective applicant for the job, uh, this woman, Miss uh, Elouf, uh, had to notify Abercrombie that she was wearing a headscarf for religious reasons before they were potentially liable. And what the Supreme Court said is that's wrong, uh, that if the employer knows or suspects uh, that the scarf is being worn for religious reasons, then they have an obligation to accommodate this if they reasonably can, uh, and they are potentially liable for violating the Civil Rights Act uh, and its protections for religious practices. Uh, so in other words, the burden is not on the employee or prospective employee to inform the employer, uh, I have this particular religious practice, that's why I can't work on Saturday, for example. Uh, if the employer nonetheless knows or suspects that this is a religious practice that accounts for this you know, behavior, then the obligation on the employer's part to make a reasonable accommodation, if possible, to the religious needs of the employee kicks in. That's essentially what the case is about. Great. Thanks so much for that helpful summary. Nick, what were the key reasons that Justice Scalia adopted the standards that Rick has described? And did it depart from the court's jurisprudence, as Justice Thomas argued in his very interesting dissent, where he said that the court should have had a more relaxed standard for judging religious discrimination. Yeah, so uh, Rick's description is exactly right. Um, it's a, actually a quite a narrow issue. So, you know, the odd set of facts or the kind of quirky set of facts is she came in wearing this headscarf and they didn't know quite whether she was wearing it for religious purposes or for other purposes, but apparently, or at least it's alleged that they suspected it was for uh, religious purposes. And the question is whether, and, and thus they decided not to hire her because it was inconsistent with their um, dress code. Uh, and so it's this quite narrow question of whether that's suspicion that it uh, was, was being worn for religious purposes, whether that suffice. Uh, you could imagine that the employer would have to know or would have to suspect or maybe wouldn't have to have any sense of knowledge about it at all. Those are All three of those are plausible uh, answers to this question. But in this case, what was at issue was they have the suspicion, is that enough? So pretty narrow. Justice Scalia writes the majority opinion saying the employee uh, need only show that the employer suspected that the employee needed the religious accommodation um, and that this was a motivating factor in the decision. Um, I, you know, I guess I would say, uh, you know, really quite narrow doesn't move the needle very far in either direction on uh, religious accommodation questions. Now, you know, Justice Thomas sort of interestingly says, well, wait a second. It really takes a step back and says, wait a second. Um, the underlying question here is, did they deliberately discriminate against her on the basis of religion and or intentionally discriminate against her? And how could you possibly be intentionally discriminating if all you're doing is applying a neutral rule? 
So they have a rule about their dress code, and they apply it to religious folks and non-religious folks in just the same way. So how can you quite say that they've discriminated against her on the basis of religion when they're just applying a neutral rule? And that's a, quite an interesting uh, position, but Justice Thomas is alone in that position. Uh, and I think the court oh, – go ahead, sorry. So, well, I was just going to jump in here to say that one of the things that's so uh, fascinating about religious discrimination in the workplace, uh, and it's very much like uh, potential discrimination against uh, uh, the disabled, uh, is that as the majority of the Supreme Court says very clearly, um, this is not a situation under the federal statutes that have been enacted in which the traditional idea of not discriminating intentionally because of some characteristic is uh, the sort of the sin that we think of it as being in the context of, of race, for example. Um, in the area of religious practices, uh, federal law requires employers to go out of their way to some extent to make a reasonable accommodation to the religious practice. So in other words, the difference between justice Scalia for the majority and Justice Thomas here that Nick has been discussing is that Justice uh, Scalia says the federal law makes it clear that even if you have a policy that everybody must work on Saturday, um, and so you're not discriminating against Orthodox Jews, for example, who for religious reasons can't work on Saturday, you nonetheless might have an obligation you do have an obligation if you can make a reasonable accommodation to their religious practice uh, not to make that, that practice a factor in refusing to hire them or refusing to promote them. Um, and so there actually is an affirmative obligation, if you will, on the part of employers under Title VII to accommodate religious practices. Uh, and that's a, a central part of the decision of uh, Justice Scalia for the majority is an acknowledgment of that being the way this particular form of anti-discrimination law works. Rick, thanks so much for those thoughts. Uh, Nick, the final word to you on the Abercrombie case. Uh, whose do you think has the better reading of Title VII, Justice Scalia or Justice Thomas? Well, again, I think it's quite narrow. Uh, and I think Justice Scalia may be right and the court may be right on the, uh, you know, on this narrow question. But I actually think Justice Thomas is raising a kind of a deep theoretical point, which is what um, Rick was alluding to. Uh, so just keep your eye on this idea of what do we quite mean by discrimination? Um, traditionally, our the traditionally the meaning of the word and the meaning of the concept meant uh, don't treat me differently from the way you treat everyone else. Don't treat me differently on the basis of my race or my gender, for example. But in this, uh, in this religion context, um, and also, as Rick points out, in the disabilities context, it doesn't quite mean that. It seems to mean something more like treat me differently. Give me a, treat me differently based on my religion. Give me an exception to your rule that you wouldn't give to someone else. And so, you know, it actually really gets to a core, um, you know, a core philosophical question about, you know, whether we think that discrimination means neutrality, means non-neutrality, or whether it means something else. Great. Thanks to both of you for that fine description of Abercrombie. Let's now talk about the Alonis case. 
the Alonis case, also decided on Monday, begins with a first sentence that none of us would want if we were the named plaintiff in a Supreme Court case. It says the following. After his wife left him, petitioner Anthony Douglas Alonis, under the pseudonym Tone Doogie, used the <laughs> social networking website Facebook to post self-styled rap lyrics containing graphically violent language and imagery concerning his wife, co-workers, and a kindergarten class, and state and federal law enforcement. The court went on to address the question of whether a federal law that makes it a crime to threaten to injure another person requires that the speaker actually intends his communication to be a threat. Uh, Nick, uh, the first time the, the description to you, what were the key questions in this case? So this case concerns a federal statute, 18 U.S.C. 875C, about uh, conveying threats uh, um, in... The statute says, uh, 18, sorry, sorry, 18 U.S.C. 875C, which makes it a federal crime to transmit in interstate commerce, quote, any communication containing any threat to injure the person of another. So uh, one issue in this case was the interpretation of that statute. What conduct is quite captured by that? And in particular, what is the mental state required? What's the mens rea, we say, or mental state required? Um, what did you have to know or intend or think as you were making the threat? Did you have to know that it would be interpreted as a threat? Did you just have to be reckless as to that? Did you just have to be negligent as to that? What was the mental state you had to have? That's a statutory interpretation question. How do we read this statute? Um, now, in the background is a constitutional question, a First Amendment question. The First Amendment says Congress shall make no law bridging the freedom of speech. Uh, it's possible that under some interpretations of this statute, it might run afoul of that prohibition. So the uh, statutory interpretation question has to happen in the shadow of this constitutional rule. And uh, most commentators believe the court granted cert in this case, in particular because they were interested in the constitutional question. What, were the, what are the constitutional rules as to this? Uh, interestingly, though, the court managed to decide this, again, on quite narrow grounds. So the court decided the statutory question of what mental state was required uh, and did not actually reach the constitutional question at all. Uh, so uh, the lower courts had decided that the um, defendant needed only to uh, – sorry. Uh, lower court decided that the question should be um, decided on a reasonable person standard, which is to say, would a reasonable person have thought that, th that these postings on Facebook would be interpreted as threats? Uh, and uh, on that basis, the jury was instructed on that basis, and on that basis he was convicted. He says, wait a minute, that reasonable person basis is essentially reading into the statute a negligence standard. It's not talking about what I actually intended or what I actually knew. It's talking about this hypothetical reasonable person. That's a concept, that, uh, um, that's a concept from negligence law. And that's too low of a bar. Uh, what's really required is that I either knew that it was a threat or perhaps at least were that I was perhaps reckless as to whether it was a threat. 
So the plaintiffs, sorry, the defendant says um, uh, this is too low of a standard. The mental state required had to be this higher standard. That was the issue before the court, and the court agreed with him. Negligence does not suffice. The court, though, didn't specify what would suffice. So maybe recklessness, maybe not, maybe actual knowledge. Thanks for that great description. Rick, help um, unpack it a bit for our listeners. Why is it that uh, adopting a different standard might have raised First Amendment problems? And why was it that Justice Thomas, once again, interestingly, in dissent, uh, joined partially by Justice uh, Alito in this case, thought that uh, a lower standard that didn't require uh, actual knowledge would have sufficed? Yes, this is a quite fascinating case, and it's also very significant that Chief Justice Roberts decided to uh, assign himself the task of writing the opinion in this case, which is a further sign of you know how interesting and rich and uh, complex the issues are in a case like this. So uh, uh, Alonis, uh, you know, engaged in uh, the use of all sorts of violent imagery, violent rhetoric uh, directed toward his as his ex-wife and others, uh, and she says, "Look, I was terrified." Uh, by what he was saying on his Facebook posts and the like. I thought, uh, with good reason, my life was at risk, or there was you know, a, a risk of bodily harm that he was coming after me. I shouldn't have to live you know, under this kind of constant fear and threat. Uh, and the federal government prosecuted him for a, the criminal act of making a threat, communicating a threat to injure another person. Um, he says, of course, uh, look, I was getting out my anger. I was, you know, vetting my rage. I was doing what uh, rap singers do. I actually imitated Eminem in some of this uh, language. Um, and I can't, be, I can't be guilty of a crime, uh, you know, without having uh, the, 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 the intent to actually harm her, to actually do something. I wasn't going to do anything. This is just uh, a way of expressing my anger and rage and pain and frustration. Um, so that's sort of the, you know, from both perspectives, uh, a way to describe the case. And uh, that's why it is a tough case. But the Supreme Court here uh, said very, you know, strongly, not a lot of division on this, that when we're talking about criminal sanctions, when we're talking about the criminal law, it's a, it's a basic feature of most of American criminal law that you have to have what's called a guilty mind. Uh, and in this case, because the jury was allowed to convict him on the basis of what his wife perceived or ex-wife perceived in his words, that she felt she was being threatened, um, that that's not enough in the criminal context. Uh, and that the statute has to be read to require either that he intended to harm her or that he knew his words uh, would be taken by her as an intent to harm her, as an expression of an actual intent to harm her. Uh, and there's no question that the First Amendment is in the background of this case because, you know, the boundary between expressing all sorts of uh, negative, nasty, hateful, violent kinds of thoughts and actually crossing the line to crime is a particularly difficult one in the American context uh, especially since we have such a strong First Amendment that puts that boundary very far out there. 
Uh, and so the court did not address any First Amendment question here. It was only interpreting the statute uh, to say that there must be a guilty mind that he, that he had in order for this to be a crime. But I, I think that, you know, there's no question that the issue of how to read a statute like this has First Amendment uh, sort of overtones or implications. Thanks for that. Indeed, as you suggest, the, the American Civil Liberties Union hailed the decision for recognizing, in the words of Stephen Shapiro, that the law has for centuries required the government to prove criminal intent before putting someone in jail. On the other hand, as it happens, uh, Mr. Lonis was arrested again in April for supposedly throwing a pot at his girlfriend's mother in the head. That time he was charged with simple assault and harassment. Nick, it is interesting that Justice Thomas uh, filed a, a, a lone or partially a lone dissent, joined partially by Justice Alito in both of these cases. In this case, he would have uh, made it easier to prosecute the uh, Mr. Alonis, and in the other case, he would have made it easier to find a religious accommodation uh, for the job applicant. How do you, what do you, how do you account for the fact that Justice Thomas uh, is 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 writing alone in 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 both of these cases, and and how do both of his dissents uh, relate to each other? Well, Justice Thomas is uh, famously um, uh, willing to start from first principles. So Justice Thomas begins with the text of the Constitution, the text of the statute, the history, and so forth. And uh, he's not necessarily as swayed as the other justices by what the court has said in prior cases, uh, and which uh, is the doctrine of stare decisis. So he's not at quite as moved by stare decisis as some of the other justices. And that willingness to, um, to start from first principles uh, means that he's often willing to take, you know, I guess, uh, bolder positions or steps that are uh, a, a bit um, larger steps than the rest of the court in some of these cases. Um, the majority opinion in both of these cases is quite narrow, doesn't move the ball very far at all, and actually leaves a lot of unanswered questions. Justice Thomas, starting from first principles, would be prepared to uh, you know, answer some questions and maybe move the ball a little bit farther. So that's a bit characteristic, I'd say, of his jurisprudence. But, you know, as you say, he's uh, alone in both of these cases. Um, I'll make one just final point about this case. Um, on one level, this case really is a kind of failure of legislation. Courts spend a great deal of their time trying to figure out what the mental state requirement is of criminal statutes when the criminal statute doesn't specify. So Congress wrote the statute, but Congress didn't say whether it required negligence or recklessness or willfulness or whatever, and Congress could have specified. And what I would say is Congress should specify. That really is part of its job. It should specify in every criminal statute or at a minimum, it should write a general statute, which says if we don't specify, then the answer is recklessness or whatever, uh, because courts spend really an inordinate amount of their time trying to discern the mental state requirement when Congress has not specified. Uh, Rick, I'll give you the last word on Alonis. Do you agree with Nick that Congress should specify the standard? And also, should the court have ruled more squarely on the constitutional issues by interpreting the statute as allowing liability without subjective intent to uh, threaten uh, that that could have presented First Amendment problems because it would criminalize speech that wasn't intended to harm anyone? Uh, should the First Amendment have been uh, front and center here? 
My answer to that is no. I, I very much endorse the approach that Chief Justice Roberts and the majority of the court took to this case. And I think actually part of what's interesting here is this is the kind of opinion that uh, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts talked about uh, writing when he was uh, going through the confirmation process. It's exactly an example of what many people would call a, you know, an incremental or more minimalist approach to judicial decision-making. So instead of deciding a big constitutional question here about the First Amendment, which would then prohibit states and Congress from uh, acting in the area that was bound off by the First Amendment, uh, all the court does in this case is decide what the statute here requires. Uh, and it overturns the conviction because the statute, in the court's view, doesn't reach this conduct. Um, so uh, that's part of what's interesting. Also, what's interesting is that both Justice Alito and Justice Thomas uh, take issue with Chief Justice Roberts precisely because they think he didn't bring enough clarity even to what the meaning of the statute is. Uh, and so they would have pushed farther to clarify the meaning of the statute more than the court majority did. And again, I think that's characteristic of the kind of justice that Chief Justice Roberts described himself in advance as, as likely to be. Um, there's disputes about, you know, has he departed from that in various cases? But here uh, he says, I'm only going to go as far as necessary to decide this case. And I think in this context, it's particularly a good decision for, uh, to stop there for the reasons that Nick, in a way, alludes to, which is this criminal threat statute is an old statute. It's been around for a long time, but Congress really hasn't given it all that much precision. Uh, and a decision like this uh, does put the ball back in Congress's court, uh, at least in the first instance, to provide more clarity um, and given the complexity of the issues in this area, I think it's probably uh, prudent and wise to have drawn the lines narrowly as the court through the chief justice did in this case. Great. Thanks for that civil note of agreement between the two co-chairs of our Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board. Uh, and uh, we've discussed two cases. We have two left. That means we're around the mid-roll. And I get once again to say the thrilling words, and now a word... From our sponsor. This episode of We the People is brought to you by CVS Health, where health is everything. Anyone can get pills into bottles. CVS Health helps get them into mouths. Many Americans who have prescriptions fail to stay on them. So they created industry-leading programs to help people take their medications regularly. CVS is working to save thousands of lives, one pill at a time. Every year, tens of thousands of lives are lost because people don't stay on medication as their doctor prescribed. So CVS Health created industry-leading programs to help people stay on track. Visit cvshealth.com to learn more. All right. Now it's time to preview a few other uh, crucial cases that are expecting in the upcoming weeks. We're going to focus on two of them. Nick, you have been involved in a fascinating case involving the city of Los Angeles, which has a law that requires all hotel owners to keep records of their guests and turn those records over when the police request them, even without a warrant. You filed an amicus brief in that case. Tell us what you've argued and how you think the court should rule. Yes, this is quite an interesting case. Los Angeles has an ordinance that requires hoteliers to keep certain records about their guests. 
things like names and phone numbers and license plates of cars, things like that. And uh, moreover, the ordinance says that the hotelier is required to turn that, uh, turn those records over to a police officer upon request. Uh, that is without a warrant, without any particular suspicion. A police officer can simply walk into a hotel and say, show me your guest registry and the hotelier is obliged to do so. So this is a, a Fourth Amendment question. Uh, this is, um, does this constitute an unreasonable search and seizure when the police officer uh, comes in and does this? That's the Fourth Amendment language, forbidding unreasonable searches and seizures. Some hoteliers bring suit saying this violates the Fourth Amendment. This is inconsistent with my right to be free of unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, so that's the Fourth Amendment question. Interestingly, though, oddly, the hoteliers have brought this as a purely facial challenge, meaning they're not complaining about any particular facts. They don't say a police officer came in on Thursday and asked for these records, and that was unreasonable. Instead, they say this is unreasonable as a regime. Somehow this regime violates the Fourth Amendment without pointing to a particular search or a particular seizure. They just, uh, they're um, challenging it completely abstractly or facially. And so the courts granted cert on two different questions. One is whether that's a proper challenge at all, whether you can bring a purely facial challenge under the Fourth Amendment or whether you need to complain about a particular set of facts. So that's, all, that's like a threshold question. This is a proper challenge. Um, then, is this regime consistent with the Fourth Amendment or not? And what's your answer to that question? Let's imagine that someone comes and challenges it on the facts. Uh, the uh, city says that because the hotel industry is closely regulated, the law's been on the books for a long time. Hotel owners don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in their guest records. On the other hand, from teaching criminal procedure, I remember all those cases where the fact that the cops suspect one person who may be in a hotel doesn't entitle them to go into the hotel and search all the rooms. So, Nick, in your view, does the fact that the law has been on the books for a long time defeat the guests' reasonable expectation of privacy? Well, uh, you know, I think what I would say, I think actually um, it's important to answer the first question first, and here's why. I think the answer to your question, the second question, may well turn on the facts. It might well matter quite what the information the police officer had at the time or how likely it was that the person he was looking for was actually in the hotel. Um, it, might, it might be a quite a fact-specific inquiry. And that's what makes this such a strange case, is we don't have a set of facts. We have this abstract ration, we, we just have this abstract framing of the thing challenging the regime. So my answer to your question is, it's going to depend. It will depend on the facts, and here we don't have any. So the brief that I filed on behalf of the Manhattan Institute made that point. We were arguing that on question one, this is just not a properly framed challenge. Uh, and here's the way we talked about it. We said, look, different constitutional rules bind different actors. Some of them bind Congress, some of them bind the president, some of them bind the courts. And it's essential to figure out which clauses bind which actors. 
Now, the Fourth Amendment, which is about unreasonable searches and seizures, we say binds the executive branch, forbids the executive from doing something, searching and seizing. And so you can't quite challenge legislative action. You can't quite challenge what the city council did in passing this ordinance. You have to challenge an executive action, somebody doing a search, somebody doing a seizure. And as far as anyone can tell on the facts alleged here, nobody has done one yet. We don't, at least we don't have, we're not, no facts are alleged as to a particular search or seizure. And so, as far as anyone can tell, no Fourth Amendment violation could have happened yet. That's the claim in our brief. We would say this case should go away on those grounds. And it's exactly because we can't quite give an answer to your question. Your question is um, going to turn on some facts, and here we don't have any. Great. Well, um, we now turn to the final of the four cases that we're discussing, and that's an important case coming up that addresses a decision by Arizona voters to take power away from the Arizona legislature to redraw election districts and assign that power to an independent redistricting commission. Uh, you'll remember that we had a great uh, podcast on that case uh, just a few months ago. The Supreme Court will decide it soon. And we are privileged to have the preview thoughts of one of the great experts in electoral law in the country, uh, Rick Pildes. Rick, tell us about the stakes in the Arizona case. What are the best arguments on both sides? Jeff, I, I think the stakes are very high in the Arizona case. And unfortunately, from the oral argument that's already taken place, uh, I'm a little dispirited about the way the case seems likely to come out. So everyone understands, or at least most people understand, that the system of partisan gerrymandering we have in the United States is not a good thing for American democracy. That we're the only country in the world, by the way, that has such a system. Uh, it's one in which the politicians currently in office draw their own election districts for themselves uh, and uh, use this power to try to help their allies, their partisan allies. Uh, it's a system in which uh, the incumbents all try to draw extremely safe seats for themselves so they don't actually have to face real competition in an election if they can avoid it. Um, and I've always thought this system is uh, just deeply unhealthy for any democratic system and for American democracy in particular. And, of course, it's gotten uh, much more troubling because with the rise of uh, big data and computer technology, it's become more and more uh, efficient and easier for uh, redistrictors to uh, pursue their partisan and incumbent protecting objectives. So if you ask, well, how could the system change? Uh, one way it could change is if the legislature would pass statutes creating a, uh, a process that reined this all in. But of course, uh, in very few places has that happened because legislators want to keep this power. Their, their political lives turn on it. Uh, and another possibility is uh, one could imagine the courts getting involved, uh, as they have to a significant extent in related areas in election law since the 1960s, uh, and establish constitutional constraints uh, on how much partisan manipulation of the design of, of election districts can take place, or how much incumbents can protect themselves in the way they draw lines each decade in redistricting. But the Supreme Court, perhaps for understandable reasons, uh, has uh, stayed out of uh, this area. Uh, the courts felt it's just too complex a problem for the courts to try to address. 
Uh, so what you have in Arizona is uh, one possible uh, avenue of reform, uh, which is in the states in the United States that have direct democracy, uh, mostly states out in the West, uh, the citizens of the state can uh, amend the state constitution or can adopt uh, legislation or laws uh, through the voter initiative process. Um, and in a number of states, this power has been used in one way or another uh, to, uh, to rein in uh, existing uh, political office holders, particularly with respect to issues in which they have a strong self-interest. Uh, so in Arizona, voters, through a voter initiative, uh, decided to uh, change the, the process for designing districts. They created uh, a commission to draw the districts, take it out of the hands of the sitting legislators. Um, and this is a system that has been developed in uh, California uh, as well. And a number of states have used the direct democracy process to uh, do things through voter initiatives to change, for example, the structure of primary elections for Congress uh, and, or various other political reforms, whether they're good or bad, uh, you know, might depend on the context and a particular point of view. But in any event, the constitutional issue that now comes into the picture is that the Constitution gave the power to state legislatures, that's the word in the Constitution, uh, to regulate matters like this, like the design of election districts, uh, at least in the first instance. Congress can override the states, uh, but state legislatures were given the power to do things like regulate the election process. Uh, and the constitutional argument is that word legislature has to be read in a, a particular way. Um, and what it means, say the challengers, is that only the legislature has the power to do things like design the rules for the election process, including how to draw districts. The, uh, the lawyers representing the voters of Arizona who adopted this system uh, argue that, no, when the word legislature was put in the Constitution, the framers weren't thinking about the legislature versus a form that that didn't exist at the time, which is direct democracy, uh, you know, through this statewide voter initiative process. They were saying legislature as opposed to the courts or as opposed to the governor or the executive of the state. And so the right way to read legislature in this provision is the lawmaking power uh, that the state creates. Some states give the legislature the exclusive power to make law. Some states allow voters or citizens to make law through the initiative process. Um, so whatever lawmaking process the state itself chooses uh, is the process the Constitution refers to as the appropriate way to do things like design election districts. So, so that's the essential controversy in the case. And again, to step back to the sort of larger picture here, um, you know, direct democracy when it was created was justified uh, for several different reasons, but, but one of the most compelling arguments for it uh, was that, you, that legislature shouldn't be given the power to uh, design the rules under which they compete for approval, for support, for uh, electoral endorsement and accountability. Um, 
And so this case kind of goes to the, the, the most core use of the voter initiative or direct democracy process, which is to take over uh, regulating the process of democracy itself from legislators when a majority of voters in a state that has a direct democracy process thinks that process has been uh, corrupted by legislative self-interest. Now, as I said at the beginning, uh, from the tenor of the oral argument at the court, uh, I, would, I would say that it looks like uh, the Arizona Commission is going to lose, um, and the result of that, if that is the result, is going to be that voter initiative processes uh, are not going to be constitutionally permissible for regulating uh, basic aspects of, of federal election processes. They can be used for state elections, but what's at issue in this case is who has the power to set the ground rules for federal elections, for the House, for the Senate, for the presidency, and can direct democracy play any role in that process? Rick, thanks so much for that rich account of the case. Nick, the last word in this podcast is to you. Do you agree with Rick, uh, that uh, given the choice between defining the words legislature as meaning legislature, as Paul Clement argued, or defining them as including the body that makes the law, including the people, as Seth Waxman argued, that the court is likely to favor the textualist uh, argument? Um, and if it does so, what do you think the consequences will be? Uh, I quite agree with Rick that that's the likely outcome, and I quite agree with Rick about the consequences. Indeed, you know, I agree with almost everything Rick said. Um, what you might find that would be different in my account is a different emphasis. So you might notice Rick spoke for several minutes before he told you the constitutional text that was at issue. I would have started by saying the Constitution requires that state legislatures make this decision, and in this state, the state legislature is not making this decision. The question is whether this is functionally the same as the legislature, but the Constitution is quite clear, and this is one of those you know, proper nouns in the Constitution that seems to have a fairly specific meaning. So I can cheerfully agree with Rick on most of his policy points. Most of his arguments about, um, you know, why this might be troubling as a matter of democratic theory, but I think that most of the courts won't get to those arguments because the constitutional text is so clear, and I think that's what they should do. If the text is clear, that should be the end of the matter. Wonderful. Well, we end on a note of modified agreement among the two co-chairs of our Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board, uh, Richard Pildes and Nicholas Quinn Rosencrantz. They are joined as co-chairs of this board by the heads of the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society, which uh, have joined together to co-sponsor these uh, great uh, podcasts and our traveling town hall debates. Our next debate will be in New York City next week on June 16th at the University Club, where Michael Mukasey, the former attorney general, and Deborah Perlstein of Cardozo Law School will debate the question of whether NSA surveillance is unconstitutional. And throughout the month of June, we will continue these historic and extraordinarily exciting podcasts that will create a slow constitutional drumbeat leading up to the Supreme Court's historic decisions at the end of June involving the Affordable Care Act and marriage equality. That's a long way of saying please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, 
I'm Jeffrey Rosen.